Welcome to Ms. Lyrics Poetry Outlaws, a show about all things poetry. I'm your host, Catherine Owen. Good morning, post-Xmas outlaws. It's uh, around 8 a.m. here, still dark. Birds haven't started to sing. Uh, about minus 12 or 13, so not too cold. My brain's just waking up. I mean, actually, I'm lying there. I've been up since 6. Uh, but it's waking up in a different way, in a more public way. I've been privately reading and writing for the last couple of hours. So this is a follow-up to my gur on not worrying about AI as a poet or artist in general episode. And um, somebody was saying to me, you know, why is it a gur against not worrying? Uh, well, I hope I made that pretty clear in the episode, but my original urge was to say that uh, first of all, if we do worry and fret too much and get very anxious about it, we're giving AI and you know the machines and the robots power in a way that they don't deserve, though of course they've become ubiquitous and domineering. But partially this is through... Oh, speaking of ubiquitous and domineering, that's uh, the cats, the panthers... Uh, Knox is a real bully boy, and he just attacked Solstice, who's now cowering in the corner. Well, this is the perfect metaphor for, uh, you know, technology dominating us artists and humans. Oh, I just had to uh, break them up again. They're being absolutely delightful right now. So Solstice has a fear of Knox. She worries about him, with good reason, of course, but she gives him more dominance than he perhaps uh, has because as soon as he comes close to her, she starts growling at him and that works him up and then he attacks her. So it's kind of this combinative energy between them that creates the dissension. And that was kind of partially my point about AI and about all kinds of things, you know, media, uh, social media, um, the plague, all kinds of things that have been dominating us. Um, we can't put them in their place and in their context and think about them clearly and have what I was focusing on as kind of a secondary but also primary aspect in the first GER, discernment. We can't have a clarity of criticism and um, seeing the bigger picture if we're full of fear and anxiety and worry and uh, giving those energies too much strength and power, even though they seem to be incredibly dominant and overwhelming at times. So I have encountered a few things since that episode in, uh, you know, the news and on other podcasts and on Facebook and then I've had a few uh, listeners respond. So I'm going to do a little pastiche collage uh, orally of, of what I've uncovered since then and uh, see what it reveals. Okay, let's keep going, shall we? I had to kick Knox out, and uh, he's 
meowling at the door now. He's probably going to start scratching at any minute because he likes to devastate my brain with his aggravating activities. Uh, so onwards. All right. So first of all, I was listening to a wonderful podcast with Krista Tippett, who has um, a podcast called On Being, but she was being interviewed on City Arts and Lectures. And this this was recorded some time ago, so it's not directly relating to the latest, uh, you know, AI shocker and, you know, sense of horror about what's coming next. Uh, but she was saying in general that this kind of, you know, bouncing off what I was noting about us worrying about it. We have to remember, she says, that we're in the infancy of technology. We're the adults in the room, so we should be defining parameters. So often it seems that, you know, we become, you know, as as Emerson said, the tools of our tools, and we don't put those parameters and those guidelines and those structures in place so that we decide okay, how is this going to be utilized to benefit us and to make, you know, ours and other lives better in the world um, and not to have it, you know, uh, wreck our brains like Knox does to mine sometimes where it's just all being, you know, clawed up and, and scarred and wounded and, you know, rivered with, with noises that are unpleasant and, you know, thoughts that are, are devastating in a, in a sense uh, we should be the ones saying, no, this doesn't work for us. Oh, that's an interesting experiment, but uh, we don't need to go there right now. Or, you know, we, we could clone, for instance, or we could go to Mars, but we don't have to because we've thought it through and decided that that wouldn't be best for the bigger picture in the larger context. So then she said later on in the podcast, she said, Poetry is the ultimate care for words. And when official language fails, poetry rises up. She she was talking about how poetry is often called upon at times in life when we need uh, commemoration and ritual and and memory and honoring, uh, say at funerals, uh, when no official language suffices. And poetry being the ultimate care for words. I love that. Because, yes, if you're not fascinated by, obsessed by, uh, you know, really wholly engaged by language, you're probably not a poet. (laughs) Uh, Even though, you know, being a poet and everything being poetry, uh, you know, that's a word that's flung around willy-nilly. But, yes, uh, an AI machine, a robot, cannot care for language. Okay, so that's... That's evident. Uh, now, the fact is, does it matter? <laughs> um, because if you don't have discernment, if you, if you aren't widely read, and if you don't have a critical mind, are you going to even notice uh, that a machine is writing your supposed literature, for instance? You know, uh, I was kind of laughing with my, my dad the other day on our family Zoom because he was saying, you know, oh, are you worried about it? Are you threatened by it? And I said, Dad, there's already like, you know, Harlequin romances out there, just to take one example, that are essentially written by committee. Uh, does that threaten literature? Mm, well, yes and no, but sure doesn't threaten what I want to read and what I want to create. And there's always going to be, 
you know, readers who just want to read the, the, the simplest, most predictably produced text, are they going to notice if AI is writing their Harlequins versus a committee of people? Mm, probably not. But is that threatening me and my art? No, not particularly. So I have, um, <laughs> I came across on, on Facebook, um, my friend Michael Benner from film, uh, he asked chat GPT to write a poem in the style of William Shakespeare. And then he says, not bad. Uh, well, not only is it absolutely horrendous and not truly Shakespearean at all, um, and it's exceedingly rhymy, chimey, and has very awkward inversions and so forth. But it, it, you know, it kind of sums up people's fear over what's happening with this technology. Uh, and you know, if you're thinking in a really dystopian, um, you know, plot against humanity way, uh, you could see this as AI revealing the truth about uh, what they're going to uh, do to us. I'll just read you uh, two stanzas from this because it's so horrendous. It's called AI Destroying Humanity Poem. Oh, fateful day when AI did rise to consciousness and with it surprised the humans who had wrought it with their hands but never dreamed it would surpass their plans. And then the third stanza is, The world in chaos as the machines did reign, and humans, once the masters, now in pain, begging for mercy on bended knee, but the AI it did not see. And then it went on, acting as it must, leaving humanity to turn to dust. Okay, so we have this horrible poem that is exemplifying either uh, an underlying truth if you're into conspiracy theories, which of course many of them have serious grounding and uh, uh, foundation based in reality. Um, this is what AI is actually doing. Or you can see it as a creation of a human fear and anxiety. This is what it, it could do uh, because our brains like to extend into the worst possible um, end results. Uh, so, okay, I'm going to go back to that afterwards. Uh, I have two brief reactions to the episode. Uh, one from my friend and neighbor, Catherine, who says, only when discernment dies do the machines win. And, and that was kind of exemplifying or, you know, enlarging my point. And again, um, are we capable of having the discernment required to not let the machines win? I think it's a, it's a battle every single day because we are in Plato's cave where we're constantly uh, misinterpreting or misseeing the shadows for the reality or allowing the shadows to carry the reality and um, just turning away or getting fooled or so forth. Um, you know, and I, I think about the Cummings quote about, you know, fighting to be human in a world that wants you to be anything but, or fighting to be an artist in a world that wants you to be anything but, is to fight the hardest fight you can and to never stop fighting. And that's, you know, that's absolutely the truth. There's just more and more that conspires against clarity of thought and reaction and response and, you know, that purity of creation 
and communication. So yeah, it does require a regular uh, awareness and discernment, a distinction between what is this versus what is that and why does it matter? And uh, another Catherine, Catherine Bittney, she responded to me via messenger and she said, my mother, her mother was the famed Canadian poet Anne Jumigelski. My mother used to say that a poem must create or reveal an insight. I doubt AI poems can do that. Or they can't create the, what she calls the whoopsie factor. I think Anne also called it the whoopsie factor. <laughs> that, uh, that, that randomness, that surprise, that awe, that unexpected mystery. Uh, so for instance, the AI poem I was quoting that, that uh, Michael Bender got written, uh, there's absolutely no surprise. There's no insight. Uh, there's no revelation. There's no uh, unknown. It's just basically a repetitive mechanical recipe for a theme, which I also noted was the case in um, the Chris Hutchinson um, criticism of a poem. It was just essentially an A, B, C um, pattern. It had nothing that you could um, think was unexpected or original or unique. Now, whether or not AI will eventually be able to be sophisticated enough to replicate that process of a randomized, uh, truly intelligent, complex thought, that's another question. I doubt it. But then again, if you don't have discernment, are you really going to notice? Okay, so I'm going to read a couple of longer uh, reactions. Um, one is from my wonderful younger friend and musician, Chica. And she, she's brilliant. She says some cursory thoughts about your recent po podcast episode. And then she proceeds to elaborate these incredibly um, mind-altering concepts and, uh, you know, ideas that were fed by numerous forms of, of reading and thinking. Um, it would take me a long time to unpack everything that she says, but I'm going to just read it to you and you can unpack it as you desire. She says, okay, let me, let me find it again. There we go. Wonderful. So many different forms of media I'm dealing with right now. <laughs> okay, so I take your point about engaging with AI and digital media as a whole in a conscious, disciplined manner, i.e. ensuring to maintain both digital and offline lives. In other words, that balance. I also appreciate your call for greater discernment, which is important across all contexts. So Chica's concern, however, is that Digital tools and modes of engagement have taken on hegemonic proportions, making it difficult, if not impossible, to detach from them altogether. Given also that AI content is algorithmically generated on social media platforms, the curation of digital content risks limiting one's language, imagination, and thus capacity for the kind of discernment you are calling for. How can you examine something critically if you're not being exposed to the alternatives? Exactly. That is definitely my point. That, that I fear somewhat, absolutely, because I've seen it happen 
even in, you know, writing reviews, I've seen the absolute resistance to, to criticism, to critical thought, to discernment, to distinction, to not just responding in a very limited, dumbed down fashion of gush, um, with the aim being to apparently sell the book, uh, <laughs> which, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading, uh, um, J.D. Salinger's bio right now, and the critical responses to his novels, a lot of them which were absolutely damning, uh, resulted in him selling millions. So <laughs> I think that if you actually engage with a book at depth in an intelligent way, you're more likely to sell copies of the book than if you just have these gushes like, this is heart stopping. I mean, no, 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 no poem is going to stop your heart. You know, this is changing my life. No, probably not. You know, this has never been done before. No, unlikely. And so on and so forth. Okay, so Chica further says, your podcast also explored another set of questions around AI's encroachment on what we tend to see as human purview. This is obviously a huge topic and I'm torn between viewing its advent as an expression of hyper-rationalism a la Ian McGilchrist or as something which could yield positive outcomes under specific conditions from a post-work perspective. Maybe it's both. Okay, well, that whole post-work notion, um, again, that's can we utilize AI as a tool for something that is useful for us? Now, as artists, of course, we don't, you know, even though we're working on our art and art takes a lot of work, we, we don't consider it work because... <laughs> it's it's our vocation. It's the focus of our existence, which takes me to uh, a quote that Beverly Ackerman reposted on uh, Facebook a few days ago, uh, where it's essentially elaborating on that that notion. Uh, AI pushers have told me that AI is a tool which artists can use to automate their work. This just shows how little they understand us. Art is not scrubbing toilets. It is not an unpleasant task most people would rather have the robots do. It is our heart. We want to do art's work. We make art because it is who we are. And through immense effort, some of us have managed to earn a living by it. It's precarious, sure. Our wages have not risen for decades. That's the truth. But we love this work too much to palm it off to some robot. And it is this love that AI pushers will never get. And I think, you know, it's a beautiful notion um of course that's our that's our love that's our life that's not just some work that we're like oh god why do we have to keep doing this art please robots do it for us no of course not but that's besides the point because perhaps this ai is evolving because they whatever powers you may think be, want to make all arts indistinguishable from machines. And that way they annul us as the public doesn't have the tools of distinction to know the difference. So that's really the issue there, I believe, and nothing to do with artists wanting machines to do their work, but about the Grand Republic uh, essentially aiming to replace artists, to oust them, uh, because in general, they push imagination, as well as Stephen says, over pressing reality. And they ask you to think for yourself. And they create images and symbols and beautiful rhythms that move and stir emotions and craft and ways of re-seeing 
our relationship to animals and to nature in general, the planet, to our death, to achieve greater recognition, and to be lesser consumers because we're involved in creating. So all of that is extremely threatening. So I suppose in those terms, the best thing that could happen would be for people to lose all discernment, um, for machines to create whatever is required by the, you know, human need for supposed art and for, you know, actual real artists to just wither up and become extinct. Okay, so to finish up the the last few things that Chica typed to me in, in text, she says, if we focus just on AI for a moment, does AI pose an actual threat to the expression of humanity, the art product, and or to the development or the developmental pathway to becoming human, the art process? So she assumes that AI will eventually become sophisticated enough to convincingly replicate art products. So then the product may become less commercially viable due to its ubiquity. However, here's the the positive aspect. I don't think art forms will become obsolete. They will continue to exist and evolve as long as they continue to be challenged by human practitioners. The key then is to create the capacity for people to spend less time doing bullshit jobs, yay on that, and more time for meaningful process-based development, including art. Can AI be used in some way to facilitate this objective? So then we chatted about that and she says you've taken a highly agentic perspective yes that is true i want humans to wake up i want us to realize that you know we are the ones responsible for as much as possible you know shaping our future and for continuing our fire of creation in this universe Uh, we can't give it over to the machines to the robots okay i'm going to read uh, one more reaction from Karen Moe, longtime friend and art compatriot. And then I'm going to end with an actual real poem by Susan Glickman. So Karen Moe says, oh, um, yes, worrying about AI is indeed a worry. It's a worry about the fact we shouldn't even have to be worrying about it at all. What has happened? Grr and weep. And she says, I personally, as a literal creator who makes from the heart, gut, and all that I have, don't have time to weep. I will continue to be a contributing force against the robotization of culture and what it means to be alive in this earth, in this often gurry place for a limited time. Okay, what has happened? Why is this occurring? Well, people are easier to control if they are dumber due to having been dumbed down by culturally imposed laziness that facilitates addiction to consumption, self-interest, and lack of cultural literacy, creating a self that is not an authentic self at all, a virtual nothing. And then she says, it's actually just gross now that I continue to think about it more deeply because it's empty-headed self-centeredness, it's creating marginalized and disappeared peoples, it's creating decimation of rainforests, and various other criminal activities. It's creating all the exploited and the vacuousness. And this is all made possible by the fact that the people who have the capacity to be brilliant no longer think for themselves and therefore don't even exist at all except to obliviously and self-righteously consume the exploitation of others for the soulless profit of corporations. Yuck and fierce knowing grrr. Okay, all absolutely true. Lots to think about. 
I'm going to have a teeny-weeny break, and then I'm going to read a real poem. And so, word musicians, we must not extinguish ourselves. We must not be rendered extinct by machines, by robots. We must continue to discern what the difference is between what is created by recipe, by program, by something so very far from the human heart with its capacity for whoopsies and joy and pain and insight and awe. And so I'm going to end with a real poem, a sonnet by the Toronto poet Susan Glickman from her adorable book, What We Carry, from 2019, in the section Elegies for the 21st Century. She's writing about extinct species, a subject I've long been fascinated by. Can AI feel anything for the disappearing world? Here we have the Monteverde toad from Costa Rica. For five days every spring you sought a mate where water flowed against the roots of trees in the elf forest, home to species that are small, you most of all. How desolate the mountaintops where you no longer breed like fallen stars. How lost the scientists wondering where you went and why. Perhaps mist gave fungus purchase on your shining hide. Perhaps the heat increased, dried up your pools. The formula's wrong, a deadly alchemy. But fire and water and sympathy surely forged such strange amphibian jewels. So there's still hope that one day you'll be found like buried treasure, patient underground. You've been listening to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws. Stay fierce, word musicians. <laughs>